Amen. Hey, Judges chapter 1, verse 7 is where we're going to kind of begin. And if you're a note taker, I would encourage you to pull your pen out and make sure it's nice and sharp, ready to go. We've got notes in the back of your chairs. If you didn't bring a journal, you can write down some of these concepts. I believe God wants us to learn as we're now in the book of Judges. I asked this to the second uh, service last week. I said, how many guys are excited to read the book of Judges? And then, and then I followed up with, wow, you must not have ever read the book of Judges. They're all excited. It's a trick question. Because the book of Judges is gnarly. It's hardcore. It's crazy. It's rated R in certain parts. You're going to need to see a counselor after certain chapters. You're going to have questions. Man, I was just reading the last two chapters yesterday, kind of in my devotional time, trying to get some context for chapter one. I was reading the last two chapters, and I just kept shaking my head. It was getting worse and worse, and it was getting badder and badder. Those aren't even words, and finally it got to the very last verse of the book, and do you remember what it says? It says that in Israel in those days, there was no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that's kind of the summation of the book. There wasn't great leadership involved. And what God was allowing them to do is to come to the end of themselves. And the book of Judges is about a 400-year period in time. All the 20-some chapters we'll study. And in those 400 years, it gets weirder and weirder through subtle compromises and subtle sins and missteps. And yet that's not really the message of the book of Judges. The book of Judges, the message is, is God's forgiveness in light of our stories of failures. There's things in your life, things in my life we just didn't do right. There's things in our future we won't quite perfectly do in our lives. And God says, hey, good thing it's not about you. It's about me and the way I can restore you and the way that I can lead you. The word judge, by the way, is important that we understand because in our mind, we understand a judge to be wearing a black robe and, you know, with a gavel and be sitting behind the bench and leading people. That's not at all what these judges are. The better word for judges would be heroes. This book should be called Heroes, and God raises up 12 heroes, men and women, along the journey in the 400 years that are supposed to save Israel from their troubles, that are supposed to lead Israel and make better decisions and get them out of the binds and troubles that they find themselves in. Some of those judges are admirable. We study them and say, oh, good job. Some of those judges we study and say, let's not do what that person did. And yet God raises people up in order that we might find ourselves walking nearer and dearer to him. And he does this in every single season, every single situation in our lives. And yet, I'll tell you what, as we study the book of Judges, I, I, I in one sense, want to go as fast as possible, get through it, get it done, tuck it under our belt and move on because it's really gross. But there's other things that I believe the Lord wants to work into our hearts. Because from time to time, your life it gets gross. From time to time, the people around you, man, they just do gross things. Things happen. Things spiral out of control. We read the headlines every single day, and we're kind of always looking for the worst of the worst of the worst. We're addicted in a way to kind of that drama reaction, what's going on in the world. And this book can be offensive. And I was pondering this yesterday. I, I mentioned this to John Bales over here on my right. I said, I probably not going to mention this from the pulpit, but, but here I go. I was considering our culture that we live in today that we live in one of the most carnal and worldly and sinful cultures that, that I can remember, where we're celebrating and, and, and parading and, and making margins and changing definitions for sinful things, carnal things, worldly things, godless things. And our culture says, yeah, this is good. And yet, on the contrast, on the other bookend, our culture also is one of the most self-righteous and unforgiving societies we've ever lived in. They have no patience for anything they disagree with, and you'll immediately be canceled, or 
the deplatformed. And while our culture says all this chaos and garbage is okay, they also have a real narrow view of any sort of misstep. And it's, a, it's an enigma to me. I'm just kind of processing this where we find ourselves. But the reality is, from time to time, our lives get all messed up. We find ourselves dealing with things that we wish we didn't have to deal with. And if we don't have an understanding or a compassion or an empathy to be able to walk with people in their darkest days, we're not going to be like Jesus. You see, Jesus, on the other hand, got on his hands and knees, and he washed the feet of his disciples. It was a real nasty job. Nobody else wanted to deal with the stuff. Nobody else wanted to humble themselves in that way. And I think that as we study through the book of Judges, it's a gift to us. It's going to equip us to be there when men and women in our lives, or possibly even the men and women that you face in the mirror from time to time, need great ministry, need great help, need great deliverance. And so may the Lord give us that compassion and empathy, but also those principles and insights that would allow us and equip us to walk righteously because we can learn so much from the stories of history so you and I don't have to make those stories our own history. They say that experience is the best teacher, but it doesn't have to be your own experience. You can learn from somebody else. And so as we study this out and gain these principles, the other thing I mentioned last week is that some of these pictures in the Old Testament are put here to also show us pictures of New Testament principles, theology and doctrine, things that are unchanging, things that might go over your head from time to time, but are evidenced and illustrated best in a story. Maybe somebody's been trying to explain something to you one day and they said, let me tell you a story. And then you can understand these truths. We can understand many truths from the stories that we're going to study here today. Let's go ahead and pick up in verse 8 and see what we can get out of this. It says, now the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem and they took it and they struck it with the edge of the sword and they set the city on fire. How many of you guys have ever heard of the city of Jerusalem before? Kind of a big deal. This is only the 10th time in the Bible thus far that the city of Jerusalem is mentioned. And yet you who are Bible students know that Jerusalem is a very important city. It would eventually go down as the city of David, but not right away. It would only go down, listen, as the city of David, where we were just there a couple weeks ago in Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if I forget you, let my right hand forget what it's supposed to do, the psalmist said. Jerusalem. How many times do you think Jerusalem is mentioned in the Bible in totality? This is the 10th time. Any guesses? I've mentioned it before in, in passing. Nobody was listening. Cool, cool. 900 times the book of, or the name Jerusalem is mentioned. 900. By the way, little tidbit here. There is a great discrepancy for who should be in Jerusalem. Many nations have fought over Jerusalem. It's one of the longest inhabited cities in the world. There's been nations living in Jerusalem for longer than any other city. At least uh, they share that same record with many other cities. But the Muslims also claim great precedence over Jerusalem. They say, hey, this is the second most holy site for all those who are Islam or Muslim and who, who practice Islam and worship in this way. And so they have the Dome of the Rock Mosque there on the Temple Mount. And they say, this is a very important site. Their most important, Muslims' most important site is Mecca. That's where everyone has to go and they have to pray towards Mecca. But let me ask you this question. How many times do you think the city Jerusalem, the second most important place to the Muslim community, how many times then is Jerusalem mentioned in the book of the Quran? How many? Starts with hero, rhymes with zero, starts with yeah. zero. It's not mentioned once. Interesting to me, maybe to you as well. I don't believe this is actually the most important city. I say all that to say this though. Here we have the children of Israel 
They're now in the promised land. And they go and they fight against Jerusalem that will one day become Jerusalem. But it doesn't start out that way. It has to go through some battles and through some refinement, through some attainment. And maybe you found the same thing to be true in your life where it hasn't necessarily become that precious to you or maybe the things that God has even revealed to you that one day will produce fruit and hasn't done it yet. And I would just encourage you, don't give up. Keep going. Keep fighting. Keep trusting the Lord. It would be Second Samuel. King David would bring the ark into Jerusalem, would worship there, and the city would be set up in such beautiful ways. And it says it right here, though, what they did is that they took their swords and set the city on fire by the edge of the sword. Sounds pretty brutal, doesn't it? Let's go ahead and make that into a picture, though. The Bible says that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, and that when the Word of God goes into our lives, it, it sets us on fire, a holy fire. It changes us. It grows us, causes our roots to go down and our fruits to come out. And when the word of God is applied to your life, the edge of the sword, man, you get fired up. Things change for you. And God begins to fulfill the purpose of your life. I hope you're into God's word. I hope you're filling yourself with God's word. I hope you're making room for God's word. I hope God's word is on the tip of your tongue. And if it's not, maybe today, say, yeah, let it be so. Because if you want to see our city set on fire, how many guys want to see Newport, Oregon set on fire by the edge of the sword? Maybe you didn't understand the question. Like, <laughs> Pastor Luke, you know. We do want to see the city of Newport, the county of Lincoln, set on fire by the edge of the sword. I want to see my life set on fire. Did you know that on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was given, tongues of fire were given to each and every one of the believers, and they were kindled on top of them, and they began to speak the great wonders of God with their tongues and known tongues and unknown tongues? Don't you just want there to be the fire coming from your life? Man, it was so cool. A couple days ago, maybe eight days ago, we were in Kentucky, and then we drove to Ohio, and, and I was at the Cincinnati Northern Kentucky International Airport with a group of people, and we were getting ready to fly home, and we had about 90 minutes there before the flight took off. We didn't want to be late. I don't even remember how many kids. We had 27 or 21. We had a bunch of people, so we got there early, and I remember I went to use the men's bathroom more than once, and there's a point to this story. Trust me. And when I went into the men's bathroom, they had all these urinals. And they're right inside the urinals. They had a urinal insert there to kind of help guys aim, if you would, you know. And it was like bright yellow. I just remember this like tennis ball. I was like, whoa, those are cool. And then I went in a second time because I drank a Starbucks, you know, that Pastor Toby got me. And when I went in the third time, I was surprised because the inserts were gone. They'd been removed. All of them had been taken away. And I immediately thought one of our kids had stolen them. Isaac, you know, and I didn't know. And, and so I looked down the row and there was a guy standing at the end there and he was working and he was one of those custodial guys and he was working and I was able to figure it out. I was like, oh, he's swapping them out. And so I just had my Starbucks coffee and I was looking at him and I said, are you taking all these urinal inserts out of the urinals right now? And he looked up and he said, yeah. And I said, that's crazy. <laughs> I said, you're doing such a good job. I said, I can't believe you're doing, and he was a, yeah, I said, how old are you? He said, I'm 20 years old. I said, you're 20 years old. And I was just impressed because he's doing this nasty job. And, and I said, hey, you know what? You're doing a great job. And the Bible says this, and I began to share with him. I said, the Bible says this, that if you are faithful in the little things, God is going to put you over bigger things. 
I said, are you a Christian? He said, yeah, I am a Christian, but I'm not going to church right now. I said, that's okay. You need to get that right. What's your name? He said, his name was Cole. And I said, Cole, you need to start going to church. I said, no, this God sees you right now. Just like he saw Joseph. And I explained the Joseph story to him and I'm telling him, and you could just see the Holy Spirit ministering to him there by the urinals. And at the end of the car, it was so quick, I had to get on my plane at the end. Here's what happened next. I remember he took his glove and he pulled it off and he said, thank you. And he put his glove out of his hand. And I was like, what? You know, how clean was that hand before he put that glove on? You know, so I reached out and shook his hand. And when I left there, I believe not only was he fired up from just a simple word of encouragement, but I was fired up. Matter of fact, I walked out, I was, fire, I was drinking a mocha, but I was fired up and, and, I, and I walked out and then I saw the guy standing there by where you get on the plane, you know, and it was the same guy that gave me my boarding pass about 90 minutes earlier and he came there to the, to, to the terminal and I said, hey, it's you again, there you are, you know, and we began to talk and I said, what are you doing today? He said, oh, I'm getting off work right now. It's about 11.15. I said, right now? What time did you start? And he said, I started at 3.30 in the morning. And he was a, a black guy with tattoos all over his hands. And he had an interesting mask on with a zipper. And his zipper was undone the whole time. I thought, okay, that's, you do you, you know. And he said, I'm getting off and I'm excited. I, I said, hey, you know what? There's this story in the Bible about Joseph. And I began to share the same thing with him I shared with Cole. And he was fired up. I said, God sees you. And he's honoring your faithfulness. And you're here. You're getting up at three in the morning to come work at the airport. Listen, I, and I got on the airplane. I was so excited, and we landed in Chicago, and we got to Chicago, and I met another gal named Delisa. I think I shared her story last week. I can't remember, and was just encouraging her. And this is what God wants to do with each and every one of us. Everywhere we go, letting the word of God come out of our lives, both in action, attitude, and in words. How is the city of Newport going to be set on fire with the edge of the sword? It starts with you first, though. It starts with me. It starts with being Bible guys and Bible gals. And you might say, well, man, I've been doing this for 10 years, just like this is the 10th mention of Jerusalem. It hasn't transpired. It's not taken root yet. Don't quit trusting God in his process. TTP, trust the process. Well, we see here that the edge of Jerusalem was beginning to catch on fire in this way. Let's catch some more stories. Look at verse nine. It says, and afterward, the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who dwelt in the mountains in the south and in the lowlands. And then Judah went against the Canaanites who dwelt in Hebron. Now, the name of Hebron was formerly Kerjath Arba, and they killed Shishai, Ahiman, Pokemon, and Talmai, all these people. By the way, when it says Judah went down, we know that Judah went up first, Judah and Simeon. We learned that last week. Judah means praise, the line of the tribe of Judah. But I need you guys to understand something. This actually isn't Judah just generically. What we're now studying right here, right now, right, right now, tune in. This is Caleb. This is actually Caleb's feats that we're seeing. And it's feats that we have already studied in Joshua 15. This has already been kind of mentioned and now it's being rebroadcast. And I'll make some more points about that. Because Caleb, man, Caleb was a fighter. Caleb's name means bulldog. He was an older guy. And he was one of the original 12 spies that was sent into the promised land to check it out. Him and Joshua came out and they said, it's incredible. Everyone said it was incredible. Everyone saw the exact same thing. Man, their grapes are like bowling balls. There's so much stuff. 10 of the spies said, it's going to be hard though. It's not going to be easy. There's bad guys. There's conspiracies. There's all kinds of things. There's injustice. There's things that are going against us, all, all true, all real time, all broadcasting in the news. And yet two guys said, so if God be for us, then who can be against us? And this was Caleb. And can I just explain something that I forgot to explain at the beginning? The book of Judges and the book of Joshua stand in contrast to one another. The book of Joshua 
is when the children of Israel, listen, by faith enter into the promised land. God told them they could, and so they finally did. They simply believed it, and they received it. Listen, just like the way you got saved. There was nothing you did to get saved. Not one thing you did to get saved, except believe. Jesus was asked one time, what must we do that we do the works of God? And Jesus said, believe on him who he sent. It's belief. It's belief. And when you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus died and rose from the dead, you shall be saved. It's by faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You guys believe this, right? The way we got saved, the way we became spirit-filled, the way we became destined for heaven was by faith, simple believism. Listen, but the book of Judges is not about faith. That's done. We're saved. You're good. I'm good. We're good. The book of Judges is about faithfulness. It's about now what you do after you've been saved. And it's a sad story. And it's difficult days. Because even though you're saved and I'm saved, and that will never change, it's a gift. There is, listen, there is a contrast, there is, listen, a contrasting principle that you will reap what you sow, that you will get what you give. The Bible calls it this in Philippians chapter 2, right around verse 12. Paul says, hey, you're saved, sweet. Now work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Listen, young people, listen, not young people. By faith, it's free. It's a free gift of God. But, but, your faithfulness to the gift that he's given to you will be judged. You're going to heaven. I'm going to heaven. Free, forgiven. But, the things we do or don't do will be held accountable one day. The Bible tells us this. It teaches this. And you reap what you sow. As a matter of fact, we saw that from Adonai Bezek in verse 7, where Adonai Bezek looked at his thumbs. They were gone. He looked at his toes. They were absent. And he said, wow, I did this to 70 other kings in my life. Whoa, now it's happened to me. That makes sense. You reap what you sow. I did that to so many. God did it now to me. And I say that to say this, as we get into these dark waters and, and yucky texts, today's not going to be a really nasty day, but it's going to get worse and worse as we go and the principle is, even though I'm saved by faith, going to heaven, I'm going to heaven. There is a requirement of faithfulness in my life. There is. And if I come up short in that faithfulness, there will be consequences that I have to endure in my life. God is not mocked. And what happens is, and the tendency is this, is I'm living in the promised land. I'm spirit-filled. It's a gift. Now I can kind of abuse grace from time to time. Maybe you've had this thought go through your mind. I don't have to take it as seriously as some others do or as I used to. God knows my heart. He'll give me grace. It'll be okay. And yet we find ourselves learning from the stories here. There is a cause and effect. There is consequences to our actions. This is theology 102. Theology 101, there is a God, you're not him. Okay, there is a God, well, there is a God, but he saves us by faith. And then he asks us to walk in faithfulness. I'm hoping we can swallow that pill as a, as a congregation. I'm hoping I can swallow that pill as a pastor moving forward in my life, that I can understand God's grace towards me, but that, listen, God's grace toward me would teach me to deny ungodliness and worldly lust, like it says in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, that God's goodness toward you is designed. His kindness leads us to what? Repentance. Thank you, George. Romans 2, 4. 
He's so good to us. And yet we learn from this book, man, the children of Israel don't find themselves necessarily executing perfectly. We're doing a throwback story here of Caleb, though. And he finds himself taking on Hebron, which was formerly Kerjath Arba. And they changed the name. How many guys remember what Hebron means? We learned it a couple weeks ago in Joshua 15. Hebron literally means fellowship or association. They changed the name of this high country, this mountainous region, this difficult area in the promised land to a place of fellowship, a place of connection and association. And the simple application is this. When you go through hard times, when you go through difficult mountainous days where the giants are real, did you know that God's intention is that you have greater fellowship with him? You don't need to raise your hand, but how many of you guys want deeper fellowship and sweeter intimacy with the Lord? I do, okay? It doesn't always come from sunrises and sunsets and rainbows and, you know, all the things, oh, the Lord, oh, that's cool. But oftentimes, what will take you closer to his presence is dark days, deep waters, giants fought, battles won. And the Lord and the fellowship you have with him will be more intimate and sweet to you than ever before. Well, hey, check this out. This is kind of a throwback. We're going to learn the same stuff we learned a couple weeks ago because you guys are just like me. You forget stuff. It says here in verse 11, it says, from there, remember they fought all these guys, Ahiman and Telman, all those guys. They went from there and they went against the inhabitants of Deber. Now, the name of Deber was formerly Kerjath Sefer. Deber doesn't mean fellowship like Hebron, but it means sanctuary. They're changing the names of these areas. They're conquesting and saying, let's meet with the Lord. And it would change the name to fellowship and to sanctuary. And then Caleb said, verse 12, whoever attacks Kerjath Sefer and takes it, to him I will give my daughter Oxa as a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. And so he gave him his daughter, Aksa, as a wife. How many of you guys remember the story in Joshua 15 a couple weeks ago? Good. I'll teach it to you again as if you just learned it today for the first time. So Aksa is the daughter of Caleb. And Caleb's an older guy, and he sees the promised land. And he takes these three guys out, these big giant guys, Tailman and Shishai, and, and to all these other guys, Ahiman, who must have liked tuna steaks. He's an Ahiman. You know, he likes his tuna. Anyways, that made sense to me when I read it. And now Caleb says, hey, listen. There's more to do. Whoever takes Kerjath Sefer, I'm going to give Oxa my, my daughter as a wife. Now, he could have done it himself, could he not? But instead, Caleb, I believe, is a good leader, and his faith was enough for himself, but now he's sharing his faith with the next generation. He's modeling it. He's leading, but he's also opening a, a door for the next generation. Did you know that you and I each have a next generation right behind us? Men and women watching you, looking at you, learning from you. Every single one of you right now are leading other people. And your faith is an encouragement to them. At least that's the hope. Sometimes our faith can be a discouragement or a stumbling block. And yet what God asks us to do is have faith like Joshua and Caleb, who see all the troubles in the, in the area, see all the things that everyone sees, and yet you and I respond differently and say, yeah, the Lord's for us. Who can be against us? Let's go. And as you have that kind of faith, God will fight for you and make opportunities for other younger men and women to have faith as well. I take this seriously because I've been a young person before. I've been fresh, ready to take on the world. And then following the older generation ahead of me and asking them for instruction and taking cues and watching them. And now I'm kind of in that middle ground where I'm not quite old. Amen? <laughs> feel kind of old. And I'm not quite young either, amen. You know, I'm not quite, I'm like, okay, how do I both follow the next generation or the generation ahead of me and, and also make room for the generation behind me? Caleb did that well. Othniel, 
And I believe there's two reasons why this story is repeated because when I read this in my study of Judges, like, what the heck? We've already studied this. Why in the world would they repeat it? For two reasons, I'll suggest. Number one, of its great importance. When the Bible repeats things, whether it's in the Gospels and they repeat the same story, it's because you need to lean in, tune in, and drink within what God wants from you because this is an important story. This is not something we want to take casually because Caleb is a picture of the Holy Spirit. In our relationship with the Holy Spirit as the New Testament church, Joshua was a picture of Jesus and Caleb assisted Joshua in his conquest of the promised land and all these pictures. Secondly, though, I'll point out to you the reason why I think this is repeated right here is because as we get into Judges 3 in just a few weeks, as we get to Judges 3, we're going to see the very first hero introduced, the very first judge. Does anyone know who he is? Othniel. It's this guy. This is the very first judge. So my guess is, is the author of the book of Judges, some say it's Samuel, some say it's Caleb. We're not certain who wrote the book of Judges. Whoever wrote it said, you know what? I need to tell the backstory of the very first judge because in chapter three, he's gonna take over and lead the nation of Israel for about 40 years and we need to know where he came from. I say that to say this. God's allowing you even right now, your story, you're still living your story, you're still forming it because God has greater things for you to do. And just like God would raise up Peter and tell his story and send him out, just like he would raise up Othniel and tell his story and send him out, God is writing your story right now. If you got a pulse, you got a a purpose. And it might feel like you're repeating some stuff in your life, and I'm kind of going through this again and again and again. What's going on? Hey, I'm just getting warmed up. You're going to be a hero for, for me. Othniel would be one of the good judges. Not all the judges are good, by the way. About less than half are good and more than half are bad. And Othniel would be a good judge. Well, let's get some principal stories that we gleaned a couple weeks ago from this story. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, verse 13, Caleb's younger brother, he took it. And so he gave him his daughter, Aksa, as a wife. Aksa means anklet. Man, she's just a little dainty little thing. It means anklet. And Othniel means lion of God. He was a warrior. And as these two are riding off into the sunset on their honeymoon, now the Holy Spirit has said, Caleb, if you would, who he who takes this land, I'll give to him a bride. Just like the Holy Spirit right now is preparing a bride for the return of the Savior. There's so many ways you could look at this. Look at verse 14, though. It says, now it happened when she came to him, or when he came to her, it depends on how you translate that, that she urged him, or he urged her, this is husband and wife now, to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, oh, what do you wish? Stop right there, eyes up here. Do you see the scene? Othniel has conquered this place, Kerjath Sefer. They, they changed the name of it now, and, and now they're meeting there, and they're fellowshipping, and and she's been given a field as a, as a reward. Othniel won this field. And Othniel tells his new wife, Oxa, hey, go ask your dad for a blessing. Go ask him for more. And she pops off her donkey, and Caleb looks at her and says, what can I give you? What would you like, daughter? And she asks him this in verse 15. So she said to him, give me a blessing. Since you have given me the land or the fields in the south, give me also the springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Such a rad story, such a rad dad, this Caleb guy. His daughter's been given the field. She already has land. Othniel won it through his exploits. And she said, Dad, I got fields, but what good are the fields if I don't got water? What good are the fields if I don't have springs? Now, she had the lower springs already, but she needs the upper springs also. And Caleb looks at his daughter, looks at Othniel, looks at the fields and says, yes, you can have the upper springs and the lower springs. 
Because you know those fields wouldn't be good for anything without some water source, without some way to give them nutrients and sustenance. And so Caleb says, absolutely, you can have this. Now, if you take this as a picture of the New Testament, Caleb looks at his daughter and says, what do you want? Just like the Holy Spirit looks at us and Jesus also instructed the church and said, you have not because you, you ask not. And Jesus went on to teach this in Luke chapter 11. He said, ask, seek, and knock. And if you ask of my father for the Holy Spirit, the picture of the water, he'll give it to you. He'll pour it out. Did you know that if you don't have the Holy Spirit in your life right now, it could very well be because you didn't ask for it. You just didn't want it. You didn't know you needed to. Maybe your heart was hard or your neck was stiff or your ears were dull. And you're wondering why there's no fruit in your life and why you have fields, but they're kind of droughted. Anybody have any plants at your house? I've got this really big coffee plant at my house. We took some Kona coffee beans from Kona, you know, 10 years ago or something. I planted them. It's my most prized possession. Just kidding. No, I got this. But the thing drinks a lot of water. And if we buckets of water all week long, man, if you just miss a couple days, the leaves go down, you know, you got to keep that sucker happy. So too, in your life, the water of the Holy Spirit, the water of the word, if you don't have the water of the Holy Spirit and the water of the word, you're not going to be producing fruit. You're not going to be strong and vibrant. And yet, is this not a mystery for you who are like me, saved by grace? It's a gift of God. I'm going to heaven. Nothing's going to change. Are you guys going to heaven? I'm going to heaven. Yeah! Yeah! But... Sometimes I feel dry. Sometimes I feel powerless. Sometimes I wonder what God wants to do in my marriage or in my ministry and what's really going on. He's given to us the plains, the field. Jesus actually taught it this way in two different sections of the Gospels. When he looked at the Samaritans, he said, hey, the fields are ripe for harvest. Therefore, pray to the Father for the laborers, for the power source for the things necessary in your life, the filling, the gifting, the flowing of the Holy Spirit. Paul would write to Timothy, young Timothy, and he would instruct Timothy, hey, stir up the gift that's in you through the laying on of my hands. Remember that? You gotta stir it up. You gotta get that thing flowing again. I believe this is a picture of how we can thrive in the promised land. We've been given the lower springs. That is the baptism of salvation. If you're like me, you're saved. But you need that flowing of the upper springs. Jesus said it this way in Acts chapter one, verse eight, when they asked Jesus, what's next? What are we doing? What do we do until you return? He said, you're going to receive power when my Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then you're going to go be witnesses, martyrs, sent ones, missionaries. You're going to be on mission for me. But only when that Holy Spirit is poured out upon you, when we make room for it and receive it. Isn't it awesome that Oxa was urged by her new husband. She's the bride. Go to your dad. Ask of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to make time at the end of the service today where we're going to allow you guys to ask the Holy Spirit to fill you. We're just going to sing a song. You can stay right where you're at. You can come up and get prayed for. And you can say, I don't want to be dry anymore. I don't want to be barren. I don't want to be fruitless. I want the Lord to use my life. I don't want my leaves to hang down low. I don't want to be weak. I don't want to be sad. I want the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And I hope in Jesus' name you would say, yeah, I want that. I want all of that and more. Lord, whatever you have for me. Well, Aksha asked, Caleb gave, and she received. Let's keep going. Verse 16. It says, now the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, they went up from the city of Palms with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the south near Arid. 
And they went and dwelt among the people. Now we're just seeing the kind of conquest of the lands. This would be in southern Israel, near what we would call in Gedi, in the wilderness there. We studied that and went there a couple weeks ago. Also near Jericho, the city of Palms would be Jericho, verse 17. And Judah went with his brother Simeon and attacked the Canaanites and inhabited Zephath and utterly destroyed it. So the name of that city was called Horma. They changed Zephath to Horma. Horma means devotion. These guys, Judah and Simeon, are taking the land. They're starting off good, man. They're devoted to the things of God. This is how it ought to be in our lives as well as God tells us to take the hill, take that ministry, take that person as a spouse, take that job. And we're usually, at the beginning, devoted to those things. We see great starts here from Judah and Simeon, verse 18. And Judah took Gaza with its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. Yeah, rah, rah, rah. Says, boom, bother going for it. Verse 19, so the Lord was with Judah, and they drove out the mountaineers. I like that, the mountaineers. Must have been in Canada or something like that. Man, the mountaineers, the Mounties. And they could not, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. Stop right there, eyes up here. What? All of a sudden, things are going great. We're changing names to devotion. We're fired up. We're dedicated. Everyone's doing their job. And they're able to take out the guys in the mountains, the mountaineers. These would be the less equipped soldiers. These would be the more rural farmers. They're able to take them out. But listen, when it came down to the lowlands or the valley, they were more prepared for battle. These bad guys that had their roots in, that had their boots set in the ground. And it says specifically they had chariots of iron, horses, and so Judah and Simeon were unable to drive them out because of these chariots. Now, when in the past have chariots been a problem for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? When in the past have chariots been a problem for the children of Israel? Don't you remember when Moses and the children of Israel fled from Egypt? And they were hotly pursued with chariots. And they looked back and they actually cried out, Lord, what do we do? Here comes the chariots. And God opened up the Red Sea and swallowed the chariots behind them. And they were delivered, protected because I think our roots need to be deeper in the promises of God. You see, God had given them the promised land and had already said, everywhere your soul trods, that will be given to you. Where you walk will be yours. Where you don't walk, it won't be. You're saved, you're in the promised land. But you gotta work out your salvation. We gotta have courage and step out. But they have chariots of iron. Did I stutter, says the Lord. Now, it says that they could not. I would change that to they would not. They wouldn't do it. They just wouldn't do it. They didn't want to risk it. They had done enough in their journey of taking the promised land. They were satisfied with a little bit of victory. They looked over the horizon and saw the valley. By the way, the valley is fruitful. The valley is plentiful. This is where you would get resources and riches and fullness in, in your life. But they said, we're just going to stay in the mountains. We're just going to take the, the areas up here, the mountaineers. They, they skedaddled. They fled. But it's too tough. And can I just put a challenge out there right now? What is it that's too tough for you? Right now, what's too tough? What personality trait do you wrestle with? Don't say it out loud. But that you wrestle with. That's your burden to bear. What, what problem do you constantly find yourself wrestling with or fighting with? I've got my stuff. You do too. And every so often, I'm like, what am I going to do about it? Am I just going to settle? Am I going to stay in the mountains where there's not as much produce and not as much life? Or am I going to, listen, trust that the Lord has gone before me and he wants me to walk victorious like Othniel, like a, 
a, a lion of God. Well, these guys, I believe, this is one of their very first compromises where they didn't go in and take the land as God wanted them to. Instead, they just kind of left it for other people, hoping it wouldn't be a problem moving forward. Look at verse 20. In contrast, here's another throwback. And they gave Hebron to Caleb, as Moses had said. And then he expelled from there the three sons of Anak. These are actually the three guys we actually saw mentioned already in an order that they would find themselves walking in fellowship. Caleb deals with these bad guys, and he changes the name to Hebron again, which means fellowship. They're closer than ever before. But verse 21, the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem, so the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day, another compromise. And for the next 400 years, the Jebusites would be a problem for the children of Israel. Where? In Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the holy city. And there is a temptation in our lives as well to let the Lord come in to be the king of our hearts, the Lord of our lives, to deal with some of the high places and the mountainous regions, the ones that stick out. Yeah, definitely better get that in order. Can't be doing that anymore now that I'm a Christian. I should probably make sure this character's dealt with. And yet there's other things in our lives where I don't really want to deal with forgiveness. I'm fine. I don't really want to have love flowing out of my heart to everybody. How many of you guys love loving, lovable people? So fun to love lovable people. How, the Lord's asked us to love unlovable people. It's so difficult. And it's not that you can't, it's that you won't. You just won't. Well, they don't deserve it. I don't want to do it. I don't want to put myself in that position. I'm not going to do that. And the Lord says, okay, then that problem will be with you. It won't go from you. It will be a Jebusite thorn in your flesh for the rest of your life. Until whatever conviction it is that the Lord says, would you just do it? Just do it. Trust the Lord in whatever it is that God's asking you to let go of and or to walk in. Sometimes we need to leave the things of this world and leave the traits of our own heart. Other times it's God saying, hey, I've got this plentiful blessing for you. Would you just trust me? We argue with the Lord. Peter, argue with the Lord. Lord, we've been fishing all night. There's no way it's going to work the way you say. And he began to hear his own voice. And finally, he said, well, maybe I'll just try it. And he finally cast his nets down where the Lord had said to. And there was fruit, fish, increase. So, too, there was a storm in Peter's life one day. And he looked at Jesus and said, if that's really you, then bid me to come out on the waters. He was freaking out. It was a difficult time in Pete's life, and Jesus looked at him and said, come out, Pete. Let's grow your faith right now. Let's strengthen you. I tend to think this is one of the miracles that didn't need to happen. There was no real fruit necessarily. Why, why would you walk on the water? What a waste of resources in heaven, I would, I would think. But Peter was learning something. Peter was learning that when his eyes are on Jesus, he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. But when his eyes are on the storms and on the winds and the waves, were the winds and the storms and the waves real? absolutely and as soon as he got his eyes off jesus and don't raise your hands but man have you have you been in the battles and got your eyes off jesus just a little bit oh, and you wonder why you're not walking on water anymore now, now you're swimming <laughs> these guys they, they didn't go all in and they left the jebusites there not that they couldn't but they, they wouldn't may the lord give us encouragement today look at verse 22 and the house of joseph went up against bethel and the lord was with them 
And so the house of Joseph sent men to spy out Bethel. Check out this story. Tune in. Lean in. Let's get something that we can put into our pockets and consider. And the name of the city was formerly Luz. Luz means almond tree. And the city was called Luz. They named it Bethel, which means house of God. There was an upgrade for sure. Nothing wrong with almonds, but now God's living there. And when the spies, these are the children of Israel, saw a man coming out of the city, they said to him, hey, please show us the entrance to the city and we will show you mercy. I love how they said, please. Glad they have good manners before they kill him. You know what I'm saying? Like these guys are, these are soldiers. Hey, please show us the way and we'll have mercy on you. You know, swords out, like, uh, okay, thanks for having manners. Anyways, so, so this guy's coming out of Luz. He's got his backpack on. He's getting ready to go to Trader Joe's in the neighboring city. And he sees these spies from the children of Israel. And they say, hey, we don't know how to get in. If you show us how to get in, we'll have mercy on you. What's this guy's response? Listen to what he does. Verse 25. So he showed them the entrance to the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let that man and all his family go. Oh, amazing day. And the man went to the land of the Hittites, bad guys, built a city, and he called its name, what's it say? Luz, which its name is to this day. Stop right there, eyes up here. What a weird story. The children of Israel taken the land. They're in charge now. This guy comes out. He's innocent. He's just on his ways from the city of Luz. He's not a believer. And these guys say, hey, if you show us the way in, we'll have mercy on you. He's like, oh, okay. Uh, it's right there. And they go in and they destroy Luz. This guy's on the outside watching. His family is saved. He sees it. Luz is taken over. And what's this guy do? His reaction? He goes and joins the Hittite clan. He goes and joins the bad guys. And listen, he builds a city, and what's he name it? Luz, the same thing that was destroyed right in front of his very eyes. And as we can't, you know what this guy's name was? Me neither. Nobody knows. Because he's a nobody. He blew it. He had an opportunity to follow the Lord, to be used by God, to give his life over to God, to be impacted for God. Let's contrast this guy with another person very similar to him, whose name is Rahab the harlot. You guys remember Rahab the harlot? She's always called Rahab the harlot. They never take that part off. She's always Rahab the harlot. Even in the New Testament, she's still the harlot. When we get to heaven, she's gonna be so mad at all of us. You know, like, hey, I'm forgiven, you know. And Rahab the harlot also met some spies who were taking over Jericho. And she brokered a deal and said, I'll help you guys, but you gotta take care of my family. And so they did. And Rahab was taken in by the children of Israel. And you guys remember Rahab's story? You guys remember Rahab's story? She was given mercy, but she also had loyalty. She was impacted by the children of Israel. And she married a guy named Salmon. And her and Salmon had a kid named Boaz. And Boaz and Ruth had a kid named Obed. And Obed had a kid named Jesse. And Jesse had a kid named David. And David had some kids. And one of those kids was named Jesus. Rahab's story is so different than this guy who had an opportunity to even have his name mentioned. Had he responded a little differently, he stood and watched. Whoa, you guys are no joke. Remember, Rahab had the same conclusion. We know that God's for you. You guys are no joke. You guys are the real one. We've, we've known your story since the Red Sea deliverance. And her heart was soft even though her life was messed up. And this guy made the exact opposite conclusion and decision. He helped the children of Israel, but he, listen, listen, he went right back to the ways of the world. And he, listen, he actually rebuilt that, that which God had destroyed. And on micro levels, I can't speak for you, but on micro levels, I've done the same thing. 
God's delivered me from something. Oh, shown mercy on me, even been kind to me. Please, Luke, come over here. I'm going to destroy that thing. And I've seen the Lord destroy things that are destructive in my own life and deliver me from bondage and addiction. And Oh, glorious day. And yet in micro ways and in moments of attitude or action, even in my life, and you search your heart, I'm letting the Lord search mine. I've gone back to those things that the Lord has taken down and said, hey, why are you building that again? Why are you allowing for those things in your life? And there's so many subtle arguments that we find ourselves in and walking with the Lord. Well, I can handle it now. Man, I was all messed up when I was younger, but now it's okay. I, I got it. I, just, I know what's happening. It's okay. And we find ourselves possibly like this guy, missing a grand opportunity, becoming a, a nobody in the pages of Scripture. Oh, may the Lord convict us and say, hey, I delivered you from Luz in order that you could live in Bethel, the house of the Lord. Don't go back. Don't build those silly things. This guy, we learn a lesson from him. Look at these next verses. I'm going to read a bunch of them because we're almost out of time. It says, however, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bet-Shean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites were determined to dwell in the land. I've got that last part circled. Why didn't Manasseh do this? Well, because the Canaanites didn't want to go. They didn't want to go. They were determined. How many things have you found in your life that were just determined to stay? I'm not talking about your spouse, by the way. I'm talking about, you know, issues. That's kind of funny. The things, the issues, the character traits, the temptations, and maybe you've been trying to drive them out and get rid of them. And the Manassehites were unable to let all these inhabitants. The first one listed there says, however, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bet Shean. Could you just roll that video that we put together? I just sent this over last night. It's not a good video. It's just a little video. This is, and take those words down. This is Bet Shean right now. Um, and we filmed this a couple weeks ago. These are the ruins in Bet Shean. It's one of the biggest archaeological, that's not the right way to say it. It's one of the biggest sites in Israel today. That mountain in the background is how this used to be. They dug all the way down and found all this. This is the ancient ruins of Bet Shean, which was a Canaanite city based on the story I just read. And in Jesus' day was ruled by the Romans. The Romans occupied this city. That's near our guide and some of the people from South Beach Church as we toured it. Wonderful wonderful architecture, wonderful structure, wonderful technology. This next scene is going to show in the public bathroom here. This is the public bathroom. You can see these are the urinals. Um, there's so many urinals in today's sermon. This is crazy. This is the public. They would sit there and there'd be flowing water through here. And it's just an amazing. When we go to Bet Shean, it's our last day in northern Israel, in Galilee, before we drive south. And the, the people we take on the tour are just amazed at how beautiful this city is and how expansive it is and how just a small portion of it. I don't even have the amphitheaters. This is going to be a uh, YMCA right here. This is where they would have the sauna. They would have hot water and hot air there. People would come in here and get sauna treatments and in Rome. And I say all that to say this. When I asked our guide Nir, the video is almost over. I said, hey Nir, is there any New Testament reference to Bet Shean? Did, did Jesus ever come here? It's, it's not too far from Jerusalem. And Nir looked at me and said, no, Jesus would have no interest in this town. That, that was his own answer. Jesus would have never been attracted here. The Jews didn't live here. It was Romans. It was very godless. It was very chaotic. Right there, right, right near Jerusalem, in, in Israel. And the Romans lived there during the occupation of Jesus' time. 
But based on our story we saw right here, the Manassites didn't drive out the people that were supposed to be. They just kind of let a few live there, and they didn't get to benefit from this wonderful. It also listed here in our text, verse 27, the city of Megiddo. Maybe can you just put that picture up there for me, uh, the picture I sent just a few minutes ago? Uh, that one right there. This is Megiddo, and we have a whole bunch of sites that we uncovered. This is on day one of our tour, and I, I just picked this one picture of Megiddo. No videos. There's some cool aqueducts and tunnel systems that we discovered here, but right there in the center, you can see that kind of circle. That circle is where they would have human and or animal sacrifices, and this is in Israel. This is where the Canaanites lived, and the Hittites and the Jebusites, and they, they discovered Megiddo, and it was a, a godless area right there in the promised land where carnality and brutality and, and injustice and abuse reigned. And, and I, I read it here, and you can take that picture down, and it just says, however, they didn't do what they were supposed to do. Look at verse 28. It says, and it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites under tribute, but they did not completely drive them out. There was a compromise. They said, you know, we can't get the Canaanites out. We are in charge. Listen, because you might ask yourself, why didn't they get the Canaanites out? They were stronger. If they could put them under tribute, that means they made them slaves. You're going to work for us, okay? We're going to make sure that we make a little money on the side. We're going to make this an industry. We could just totally wipe you out. You're godless, but instead we're going to make you work for us. We're going to have a compromise of sorts. And oftentimes in our life as well, the Lord says, hey, just, just get rid of that thing. We say, well, there's some value to it. We could, there's some benefit. There's a justification. We'll make it work. And the Lord says, it will come back to haunt you. You might be strong now. Let's read these verses in succession. It says, verse 29, nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer. So the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. Nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Naholah, whatever that says. So the Canaanites dwelt among them and they were put under tribute. Same thing, they, they made them their slaves. Nor did Asher drive out all the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Alab or Akzib, Hilbath, Aphek and Rehob, so the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites. I had to read that twice. The Asherites? That's the children of Israel. They dwelt among the Canaanites. It should have said the Canaanites dwelt among the Asherites, but it didn't. It reversed it. The Asherites were in charge, but there was Canaanites everywhere, and they were trying to mingle with these people groups. All of them combined together made the Asherites, the tribe of Asher, the minority. Verse 33, nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Bet Shemesh or the inhabitants of Bet Anath. But they were dwelt among the Canaanites and the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath were put under tribute to them. And the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains. For they would not allow them to come down to the valley. And the Amorites were determined to dwell in Mount Herez and in Ajalon and in Shalbim. Yet when their strength of the house of Joseph became greater, they were put under tribute. Now the boundary of the Amorites was from the ascent of Akrabim from Sia and upward. I'm going to have the worship team come up actually because we're running out of time. But I want to ask this question. It says in chapter 2, verse 1, then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bacham and said, I led you from Egypt. I brought you to the land which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? And we're going to pick up there next week. God is so faithful. This book of Judges, 400 years in length, it's going to get deeper and darker and harder, and we're going to study it. 
because we don't want to get comfortable in our own compromises, in the areas of our own life where we just say, you know what, Lord, I don't, it's not a big deal. There are three lies which I tell myself, maybe you can relate, when it comes to my own spirituality and my own integrity and my own character. Three lies. One is, I'm not as bad as I used to be. Anybody, anybody there? You doing that? Good. I'm, I'm not as bad as I could be. Is that cool? I could be way worse. Any, how, anybody else that could be way worse than you are? I could be way, I'm pretty creative. I could be real, real bad. Or the third lie, I'm not as bad as the other people. I'm not as bad as I used to be. I'm not as bad as I could be. And I'm not as bad as some of the people I know. And the Lord looks at me and says, really? Really? That's your standard, Luke? That's what you want for your life? I don't know what the Lord has put on your heart. I don't know what greatness God wants to pull out of you. I, I do know what the word teaches all of us. So, so regardless of who you are, I know what the Lord has asked of you, what the Lord has asked of me. He's asked us to walk out on the waters, to trust him, to slay the old man, to trust him, to not store up our wealth on this earth where moth and rust and thief steal, but to make our treasures in heaven. He's asked us all the same thing. To not be mindful of the things of man, but to be mindful of the things of God. He's asked us to put him first and foremost and to trust him. To be like Jesus. To let our lives not be our own. To not take everything so seriously here, but to be heavenly minded. And so I'm going to ask you guys to stand up with me. We're going to sing a song. And we're going to ask the Lord to convict us deeply and to break those chains of compromise. Whatever it is for you, you only have one life. You don't get a redo. No do-overs. And if you're here right now, it's a gift. It's an opportunity to go all in and say, yes, Lord, take me right where I'm at. Give me the upper springs. I've got the planes. I've got the field, but I don't have any power. Maybe you're powerless right now. You're like, I can see the problems. I can see all the needs, but I need power. Did you know that if you humble yourself today and just say, yes, Lord, search my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He'll do it. He'll do it and he'll touch you. He'll change you. As a matter of fact, right now, if you need that touch, you need that change, you need to soften your heart. I can't soften your heart for you. Only you can do it. If you need that right now, I'm going to ask you just to come to the altar. Come up front right now. Come out of your chairs. Your heart's beating. You know the Lord wants to do a deeper work in you. And you might have come up last week. You might come up next week. But the Lord wants you to come up this week and say, yes, Lord, touch my heart. Change me. Come up right now. Right now out of the chairs and say, yes, Lord, I need you to take me deeper. I need you to give me, Lord, the upper springs to fill me to change my heart change my life to change lord what you want to do in me and i pray in jesus name i'm going to come down the stairs in just a minute and i'm going to join you at the altar and pray and ask the lord to fill my heart to make my roots strong to make my life count to get me out of the drought that i'm in right now and if you're satisfied with the drought you're okay with the drought you don't care about the drought you it's working for you you're not as bad as you used to be you're not as bad as some other. Don't use those standards. Ask the Lord right now, Lord, what do you want from me? What do you want from me? And can I encourage you, go all in for Jesus. Go all in for his kingdom. Don't leave any little skirmishes on the side, any little jeppesites lying around. Flush it, delete it, break it off, confess it, get rid of it. 
And Lord, as we sing these songs now in Jesus' name, would you search our hearts and would you, Lord, take the things that the enemy has supplanted in our lives and minds and would you uproot them and do away with them in Jesus' name. And would you make us, Lord, that bride that is filled, that is prepared, that is ready to be used. Lord, we also confess our sins. Maybe there's a sin in your life, a specific sin. Something's got a hold of you. Maybe it's a lust of the eyes, pornography. There's a problem there. Confess that sin. Break it off. Leave it at the altar. Maybe it's anger or bitterness or unforgiveness. Maybe it's fear. You're just so crippled by fear. You don't know what to do. You, you know God promises, but you're like, well, that, it's not going to work for me. And you need to repent of walking in fear, criticism or judgment, even hatred. Just repent. Lord, I want to be more like you. I want to be holy. Lord, would you cleanse your bride today? Wash our feet, Lord. Wash us from our gnarliness and our nastiness. Set us on fire, Lord, to the edge of the word of God, the sword. We ask all these things, Noel. Hear our praises as we worship you and as our prayers come up to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you're a prayer person, can you come up and just pray for some of these people? If you have that gift of prayer, maybe you consider yourself one of those leaders in that way. Help me to pray for some people as we minister to the Lord and let's sing and worship together.